This is Omo. Welcome back to Omo, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, I am Rosie Deloach. I'm Christopher Jacoby. And we are doing episode four. The show is about neuroses. It's uh, something everyone deals with. It's not something that comes from the craft or the discipline you're in. Of course, you bring it to the table with you. It's a... Uh, mm-hmm. If I had a rhetorical grandma, she would say something like, uh, wherever you go, there you are, Rosie. Do you have a rhetorical grandma? Oh, man, every time I need one. Yeah, she pops <laughs> up. I am. Uh, don't tell anyone. We're not recording, right? I am guilty she, of like uh, saying, well, my grandpa used to say, and then I'll like see my family and they're like, grandpa never said that. And I'm like, shh, be quiet. We are recording. Sorry. I, ah, <laughs> as long as we're not recording. It's okay. It's, okay. it's good. Oh, so neuroses. Grandma. Yes, uh, you have wanted to talk about this from the beginning. You've wanted to get to the bottom of a, a lot of things that you see in the industry that the humans are struggling with. Yeah. Um, and share uh, a little bit about, about all of that. Yeah, it's uh, it started from actually my own surprise when people um, and, you know, friends from overseas, friends from France and and England and friends from here in the States would say, you know, that post that you made or the article where you wrote about your own vulnerability or you posted about your inability to get work done and how it was making you feel was so out of left field for our industry. And it really touched me in a way that the normal interaction that we have with our colleagues and with other people in the industry doesn't because none of us do anything but pretend we are perfectly made up in a nice apron and a tie and ready to make the finest instruments that the world has ever seen. Mm -hmm. And people don't talk about the struggles that getting into something like violin making, I mean, getting into a craft where, as I say over and over again, your self-worth is on the workbench in front of you every day. What that does to your confidence, to your mental state, um, and also talking about the sorts of hardships apart from the physical that come along with doing this for a living or doing it for love. So a lot of people trying to present themselves as living perfection. Yeah. And that's not what you've encountered. And that's not what you've seen since you've started to get to know other luthiers. Yeah. And and maybe the instruments would be sterile and uninteresting if they weren't made by humans with real human problems. I mean, there's a, there's a place where, uh, you know, you make a cello and you hit every number exactly and you varnish it perfectly and your eye slides right off of it because it's dull and there is no human connection there. And then you have somebody who is in turmoil working on the same model, um, 
and they produce something which is attractive in a way that's ineffable, that's that's hard to put your, your finger on, but it makes a connection with other people because it has personality. And I think that maybe the neuroses and the struggles are something we shouldn't and definitely can't uh, separate from the people that, that make and work on the instruments. That's that's like some of the stuff we've talked about where you actually leave uh, like a energetic imprint in a way uh, yes. on, on the things that you're working on, which I love. I love. Yeah. They're going to uh, travel down through the centuries, uh, yeah. making people go, oh, some hippie thought he left his energy imprint on this. <laughs> what did he know? <laughs> So uh, tell me a little bit about some interactions you've had where people have uh, come forward to you and and shared with you their own struggles. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I mean, I, I think it started with uh, older friends and mentors who saw me 10 years into making instruments. I was, I was cranking through them. I was getting at least 12 done a year. And I was feeling a lot of my pride and self-worth resting upon that sort of macho side of it. Not mm -hmm. that it's necessarily a male thing. I mean, uh, but uh, that I was valuable because of the amount of work I could get done without heavy mm -hmm. machinery, with my back and the gouge and my instincts. Um, mm -hmm. And there were people who have looked out for me and have given me advice and given me a chance over the years who kind of took me aside and said, hey, Chris, man, uh, watch it. Uh, go have dinner with your daughters and with your wife every day. Go do that mm. and go for a walk when things get frustrating. And they were trying to in a gentle way, take their own life experience, which I, of course, had no reasonable way of accepting, uh, and give me a nudge in the right direction so that I didn't have the breakdown. Um, sure, because you're, you're not going to have those same problems. No, you're immune. No, I'm, I am a, I'm a superhero of fiddle making, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> well, you've, you've heard me use yeah. that as if it's capitalized, the breakdown, and uh -huh. it's not... Which we're, we'll get into yeah. all the way. Yeah, it's not it's not so much like, uh, you know, someone is institutionalized and and their life falls apart. Um, but there is a manic stacking of intent and work getting done that you start to have diminishing gains on the on the back edge of that mm -hmm. stacking, uh, not only in how much good work you're getting done, but in how much perspective you can keep on whether you're using your time wisely or not. And yeah. you start making goals closer and closer to the line for finishing work and uh, doing less and less careful work. And uh, I mean, so it's partly a high, it's partly like gambling because you pull it off mm -hmm. and you, you French and polish. And you, you feel the power from completing those things with your hands. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Teddy. You've felt that. It, it feels mm -hmm. amazing. And uh, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it, you, you finish French polishing the cello in the car as your friend drives <laughs> you to the city where you're selling the cello, you know, and uh, and you pull it off and then you go out for drinks and it's it's awesome, you know. Yeah. Um, and then you're doing these things. I was doing these things uh, 
rhetorical grandma, uh, mm-hmm. to, <laughs> to try and feel like you've beaten that imposter syndrome, that you're worthy of being called a violin maker, a luthier, that you're, you're worthy of your place at the table. In, you have the superpower now. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, so you want to keep it up. And um, for me, social media was a place to keep putting up how fast I was making instruments. And I, I felt the, the, the good pats on the back from people who saw and respected that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, 2016, um, I guess I got to a place, Rosie, where I was provably successful um, mm-hmm. to my own mind that I had a waiting list of instruments. I couldn't make them fast enough. Uh, I was and supporting this, this my family. Is the, yeah, this is the year that you you termed the breakdown. Yeah, and okay. I, I, uh, I recognized exactly what my friends and mentors who were already in their 50s and 60s had warned me about was Mm -hmm. a distance in my relationship with my family and uh, an inability to turn the manic off and go to sleep and get a full night's sleep. Um, Take me to a typical day. What would that look like for you? uh, Wake up at 4.30 or 5 a.m., uh, go to the restroom, drink a bunch of water, desperately try to go back to sleep for an hour, and then get up, uh, <clears throat> take the, the dog and cat out, and go open the workshop and start working. Um, kids off to school uh, around 8 or 9, work until supper time, eat dinner in my workshop, talk to my wife for a while, keep working till. 10 or 11 at night and then go lie down and just running on four to six hours of sleep always. Mm -hmm. And, uh, really beginning to see that I was harming my instruments, these brand new fiddles and violas and cellos that I was building new to go out to customers. I was pushing dull tools through them. Uh, yeah, I was, you talked about not taking the time to properly sharpen your tools. Yeah. And it, it, it was, um, I mean, it was a madness born of, I, I, I have great tool skills so I can use the gouge anyway. It's going to be a matter of character from the tool marks, but, um, yes, you have, you have spoken with admiration about, uh, Del Jesu and, <laughs> and he seems to have shown some of the same habits that he's left on his instruments. I think so, he might have he might have been a madman. <laughs> yeah. So so at the time you can have that conversation with yourself that you're touching greatness by having dull tools. Yeah. And then I mean that ostensibly I had that cover on it and I was still posting how fast I was working, but um Rosie, I was watching myself break things um, mess things up, starting plates over. And I was unable to stop because the madness of working fast enough and my Mm -hmm. self-worth being laced into how much work I was getting done was more powerful than my standard. Um, Mm -hmm. and I mean that, that's the year that, uh, that we, we found out in 2015, almost 2016 that, uh, 
that my son has a genetic disorder. He's as healthy as can be. We're very, very mm -hmm. lucky. There's lots of people. Um, he's very cute too. Yeah. Yeah. He's a cute little monster. Uh, he has mm -hmm. neurofibromatosis one and there are lots of kids uh, with neurofibromatosis one or two whose lives are a lot harder than his. And we're lucky for that. But um, that fear and anxiety and helplessness uh, just rolled it all up into who am I when I am happy? I am a successful violin maker. I've been telling myself that for years. And success means that I make more instruments than everybody else. And I make them mm -hmm. faster and I turn them out and they sell. Um, and so I just rolled all of that uncertainty and hell and helplessness into the instrument making. Um, and I came to a place where, I mean, I, I couldn't sleep and I had really lost it and I couldn't hold my temper, um, mm -hmm. with other humans, uh, let alone my, my violins. And I had to step away from the person I told myself I would be when I was successful was a happy person. And I looked around and I'd made and sold, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd made and sold 13 of 18 instruments in 2016. And I was fucking miserable instead. And, uh, it really it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody that, that this is a tale everybody knows, but it, it's just like I couldn't I couldn't see the wisdom past uh, my story about myself as a maker, and yeah. uh, I didn't know I could let it get bad enough that uh, that I would I would break down like that, you know? Yeah. So what I. Was the moment that you knew something had to change? Um, I think I'd been saying that uh, to myself that something had to change here and there and then, you know, dumping a beer down over that saying. Uh, sure. Uh, I, I don't know, really. I, um, I was offered a job by a friend uh, an hour away in Lincoln that was going to entail repair and restoration and sales again at uh, the lovely violin shop in Lincoln, which David Frederick owns. Um, and I was still telling myself something had to change when for the first time in a few years, I got to size a little kid for their first Suzuki violin. Mm -hmm. And I felt this, this bloom of relaxation in me. Something it, so simple, yeah. just a kid at the beginning, beginning, hopefully, of their journey. Yeah, hopefully if they're it's, getting a Suzuki, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, I mean, that was exactly it. And I, uh, I just needed to stop leaving so much weight on myself. You for, needed to take a step back from yourself. Totally. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, it's been really helpful to look back at just as a reminder to take a step back for myself and from my pride um, over and over since then. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, a lot has changed since then. We've moved across the country. I've got a 
great job managing the workshop at Potter Violins in Tacoma Park. Um, mm -hmm. But I wouldn't have considered taking a job in a shop in 2015 or 2016. If you'd asked me, I would have looked at you and, and gone, don't you know me? I'm a violin yeah. maker. <laughs> and it, it's like it, I mean, it's like it almost killed me. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say that I was on the point of suicide at any point, but my dark swings down from those manic hours, my inability to have a look at how I was acting and how it was stemming from my ridiculous ideas about myself as a, as a luthier, uh, when I got low, it was really dark. And uh, yeah. the thing that everybody thinks when it's really dark is, well, I'm being stupid. There are so many people who have it worse off than me. And, sure. uh, that it's, and it's that, still a privilege to get to do what you do. Such a privilege. Yeah. yeah. You know, have talked, uh, you and me and Jerry have had some discussions about that balance of being in your cave and cave. doing your creative endeavors versus taking care of people looking yeah. outward. Uh, and it sounds like that's been part of the key for you. Mm -hmm. Being empathetic for others, connecting with others and uh, not requiring um, a standard of, it's not, it's not a standard of excellence, a, a, standard of snobbery for myself sure. maybe uh that came out weird okay okay well, you're superman yeah i get it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh and i you know i'm i i, I still struggle with the balance but mm -hmm. it's it's almost like uh having punched a hole in the boat and patched it now i'm a lot more nervous in the boat i'm mm -hmm. You, let's carry this metaphor out because the water is deep. <laughs> Just, yeah. And it's full of Chinese instruments. <laughs> some of which are excellent quality, let me say. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But it's you, very deep water. Do you see yeah. any of this stuff, uh, you know, in, in, in your own life, in your own job? You know, I started so outside that that, that was my neurotic thing. It's yeah. just uh, being able to be recognized as valid when I didn't have a lot of the tools, literal tools yeah. and, and, and figurative tools to uh, do a concrete job. Uh, and uh, it's, it's feeling like a better world now than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, but I would have never thought of this as the blessing, but because so much of what I do is working with that beginner kid mm -hmm. and, and seeing them start and seeing that spark, uh, that's, that's been with me every single day. There's always people walking in the shop and my repair workspace, it's right up at the front with a big window. Mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> that people, even if they're waiting in the front, they can see what we're up to. And of course that causes interruptions, but it's always been a very, uh, welcoming space for people to, um, interact with us. Uh, and then that's the way I like it. That's great. Yeah. I uh, you, um, and I talked a little bit about, uh, just the kinds of brains that are attracted to the world of blue theory. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I think we mentioned a little bit about 
there's it's a lot of people who may not do well in traditional schooling where you have to sit still and uh, not Punch use your the hands. clock, sit in rows. Yeah. 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 And long periods of focus. Uh, and we speculate that maybe that has handed down to uh, a lot of the, the problems are just, just mental struggles that we see in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share anything about um, people talking to you about just the, the way that their brains are set up and how they struggle? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, and this is something I'd be interested in, in feedback. We'd be very interested in feedback about whether there is really a higher percentage of people with these uh, unkindly, let's say disorders. Um, and you have mentioned specifically, you have said um, ADD, ADHD, dyslexia, uh, dyslexia, hardcore, and uh, uh, some people with even suicidal ideation. Yeah, uh, and people, people with bipolarity. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, the and I, I think that you hit it pretty squarely on the head with with the idea that people that don't work well in a normal learning environment are less likely to go on and go through the courses to become. Uh, you know, engineers or accountants, if they can't feel supported and successful in a, in a traditional education system. And um, I mean, uh, it was the Moors, the incomparable Moors who have their wonderful new setup in Ashland, Ohio, uh, Mm -hmm. teaching trade secrets. Um, Check it out online. You can go and take courses with world-class training uh, for the different things we do in this business. Um, But both Rodney and my friend, Rodney's daughter, Kate, um, are dyslexic and pointed out to me um, at a a seat around a, a table of violin makers and bow makers that if we asked how many people had struggled with dyslexia, or needed mnemonic devices in their their life to to read and and parse language. Um, more than half the people at the table raised their hands, and it, yeah. it was just like a a natural gathering into our industry um, of people that needed to find something else to do with their bright intent when they couldn't do well uh, in a normal schooling setup. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm severely ADD, ADHD, mm-hmm. diagnosed young, over-medicated. <laughs> uh, you, are you laughing because it's uh, not obvious? You can't believe it, right? <laughs> no, I'm not trying to steer you toward things all the time. <laughs> I, I am stability incarnate. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, I find that there are also lots of people like me and that I'm drawn mm-hmm. to people like me. Um, in this business as well, for mm-hmm. whom uh, learning things a traditional way was hard. And guess what works best for people that are severely ADHD to challenge them is something that gets harder all the time, something yeah. which requires both sides of your brain. They hand you a tool and a piece of wood and say something obnoxious, like either take away everything that doesn't look like a violin or uh <laughs> Uh, my favorite was "Don't fuck it up." Yeah. Sorry, I'm really <laughs> dropping the f bombs today. I, uh... Oh, that's Jerry's problem. Uh, so it sounds like you still uh, are navigating how you uh, have a 
a balanced mental state. You're still working on that, but you've made some progress. Uh, If you were going to impart any advice to anyone listening, what would you have to say? Oh man, that's, that's hard because I've never (laughs) taken any advice, Rosie. I just pretend (laughs) like they're gonna just pretend. (laughs) Um, Pay attention to the fact that all the people who sit at a bench and work on instruments and bows around you all have some sort of sports or martial arts hobby. Um, Pay attention to that and sign up for something, whether it's (laughs) as low key as Tai Chi or yoga or as exacting as as uh, rock climbing or CrossFit. Um, There is not only a need to work muscles, which you are working repeatedly talking about physical health Mm -hmm. in different ways um, so that you don't get repetitive stress and get you that frozen shoulder that everyone's afraid of. But um, you've got to have somewhere to burn out that internal dialogue through cardio. Mm. And uh, I I happen to to do it on a skateboard these days, which is a little abnormal, but um, the difference in my wife when I told her I was getting an expensive skateboard to her reaction then to when she'd seen me on it for a few weeks and how in love she was with my skateboard suddenly uh, let me know I should have followed that advice years ago. <laughs> now, if we're going to be precise, it's a little bit different from a skateboard. Oh, man. It's like it's like <laughs> the coolest skateboard in the world, Rosie. It has one large wheel in the middle it has one wheel and and you what you have to you have to lean forward to make it go forward but not enough to make you fall off of it yeah yeah i mean if (laughs) if we got into all of the magic i had to no it's a it's got the same controls as those hoverboards which it's it is a terrifying thing to be on (laughs) it's amazing it goes uh it goes about 30 miles an hour um not for me because i weigh a lot because i'm a big dude but uh Mm -hmm. somebody who weighs 150 it'll go about 130 about 30 miles an hour before it dumps you it's got a range of 20 something miles it's uh it's it's basically the the metal love of my life it's he seems like an angry turbulent critter and i'm glad you can tame him (laughs) uh chris thank you for sharing what's going on with you and your struggles and i think that so many people are going to resonate with that yeah i mean Um, it it was it was scary uh but i i hope for more of the same that that we touched on in the beginning that people go oh I, everybody else struggles with this too Hi, Homo Sapiens, coming to talk to you about the upcoming Freeman's Auction in Philadelphia. There's going to be an historic auction. There are some really fine things up for sale. That is going to be on the, is it the 12th of May, Rosie? The actual bidding takes place on the 14th of May. That's a Tuesday. They typically post their catalog about three weeks ahead of time online, which could be today or any day now. Yeah, by the time this episode drops, uh, hopefully it'll be up. Be sure to check out uh, freemansauction.com for the catalog. 
And you can email them at info at freemansauction.com. Uh, you can also reach their team at 215-563-9275. Uh, there's going to be some amazing stuff. It's online. And you can also go to the City of Brotherly Love and check out the fine instruments and bows and uh, paraphernalia yourself. And that's freemansauction.com. That's F-R-E-E-M-A-N-S auction.com. They've been working really hard on this, so don't miss it if you're in the industry or if you're just interested in investment or getting to educate yourself further on uh, what it means to have something, uh, you know, be worth money in this field. Chris, I'm actually going to go see it. So do you know what to expect? (sighs) I would say champagne, fireworks, (laughs) uh, fine silks. You know, just clever folks with uh, big hearts and uh, some deals that really I'm jealous. Can uh, you want to instead come here and watch my kids and I'll go? Yeah, no, no, no. I've already booked it. I'm sorry. All right. Well, um, tell Ben Hebert that I know the difference between pants and trousers. I will. I'll pass that on. Pick that up. Yeah. So guys, check out Freeman's Auction. Look at some cool stuff. I understand they've got completely ready-to-go instruments, and they've also got some restoration projects. Yeah, there's a few things I've I've got my, uh, my wandering eye on, for sure. Oh, okay. Yeah, check it out. Freemansauction.com. I've got Julian Kosman cook here with me out of Austin. Welcome, Julian. Thank you. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about what you do in your daytime. Tell me about your workspace, where you're at. All that good stuff. Uh, my day is pretty much uh, getting out to the workshop as early as I can after feeding my own face and feeding the dog uh, and catching up with all the business email and so forth. Uh, and I pretty much spend the day in the shop um, making. I, I try to keep a schedule where I'm making three days a week and doing any restoration projects I have two days a week. Mm-hmm. And that seems to work well in terms of keeping up with the restoration work and keeping me happy that I'm doing enough making, much as I'd like to do making full time, but mm-hmm. you got to eat. Yeah. Um, my space, I've got a, a small uh, workshop that takes care of machine uh, stuff like the ba- uh, bandsaw and the sharpening tools. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it is woodworking. And then I have a second building that I use for wood storage and for uh, varnish and varnish experiments. Um so you're one of those people that walks into your backyard to work. Is that right? I have a, th- I have a 30 second commute. Yeah. 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 Nice. But you're also in the camp of people that is alone with your thoughts all day. Uh, I am. And that can be a scary place. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's some scary things going up there. <laughs> I won't share. All of you have been uh, very public even on social media with your own struggles, dealing with various things like manic depressive disorder and uh, trying to be properly medicated for that. Can you tell us a little bit more about trying to wade through this and trying to navigate that along with your work life? It's it's a constant, not a constant struggle. It's a constant process of being aware of where uh, you are with your condition with your illness. And uh, I, I think the, the important first step 
is once you've gotten treatment for a condition like bipolar depression, which is what I have. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, no I, that's right. That's I didn't right. Mean to get it's that wrong. Bipolar depression is bipolar. Okay. It's just a uh, variant okay. of it. You don't get the highs; you just get the lows, okay. which is kind okay. of kind of stinks. But you know, uh, anyway, I, I think once you've gotten treatment, it's important to establish your relationship to the uh, disease. And by that, I mean, it's not as though I am bipolar because that would give it too much significance in who I am as a person. It's more a matter of, uh, I have mm -hmm. a bipolar disorder and I'm in charge of it. So, uh, I think it's, I, I I'm, well, I, I'm a, uh, I'm a human being, complete human being first, and I just happen to have bipolar disorder. So, uh, in terms of accommodating the work, um, when the meds are working and they generally do, but every once in a while you have to tweak them. And then for a while, they may not work as well. Uh, it's, I don't really see a difference in terms of my ability to get work done and my enthusiasm for the work, uh, when the meds aren't working quite so well, I have difficulty even going out to the workshop. Uh, sometimes as uh, has been the case recently, I've been able to go out to the varnish shop and do some experiments with, uh, pigments and so forth, but to get to the wood shop and actually be working on an instrument can be, uh, more than I can manage when the meds aren't working. Why do you think that's a different challenge creating an instrument versus the smaller work of creating varnish? Uh, I think the, the demands of making an instrument are, uh, exist on multiple levels. You've got your hand-eye coordination, you've got your, uh, ability to perceive what's going on with the wood. Uh, you've got looking at the piece of wood that you're carving and trying to make sure that it is coming out, looking something like the model that you're working from. And that's, those are all pretty complex mm -hmm. operations. People think, well, it's woodworking. Wood, how hard can it be? <laughs> and reality is, uh, and I don't think it's just violin making. I've got a, uh, a friend not far from Austin and he makes incredible heirloom furniture. And I imagine that if he had the condition I have, he would be running into the same sort of issues, uh, because it is, it's such a, mm -hmm. it's a big challenge. It requires a very specific part of the brain. And if you don't have access to that part of the brain, you don't have access to your passion for using that part of the brain, then it's hard to get out there and do it. Uh, mixing a bunch of chemicals and organic materials and drying stuff and so forth. Uh, that takes another part of the brain, but it's a part of the brain that's, it's, uh, I think for some reason more accessible when I'm, uh, um, in a period where the meds aren't working as well as I'd like them to. Hmm, that's really interesting. I, I wonder if, I wonder if color and pigment mixing, that's more turning on the scientific part of your brain. It's scientific and it's, it's and so much of it is, it's almost exclusively visual. Oh, okay. uh, you, you're obviously using parts of your brain and say, okay, you know, you know that this chemical reacts a certain way with that chemical and so forth. So it is that part of the brain is engaged. So much of it is how the colors look, 
uh, initially, and then how they look as you mix them together, how they look underneath varnish. Um, so it's a visual thing. Uh, and that's, that's not, it's not hard to do. And it's, it's probably more immediately rewarding than carving wood, because even though this whole craft is, is relatively immediately rewarding, as opposed to some of the other things that I've done in my career, it is, uh, the woodworking takes a little bit longer to see the shape start to come out of the wood than mixing pigments and mixing varnish, where you see pretty much immediately, uh, whether you've got something that merits further exploration or you say, well, that's not working, set that aside and try something else. Do you think maybe the responsibility of having something that's all the way created is a little bit heavier on you than, than just that experimenting process of what works and what doesn't work with varnish? Uh, if you mean by responsibility to myself, sure. Um, I, I know that once I've cut a piece of wood a certain way, there's no turning back. Yeah. <laughs> and either it's the way I wanted to, or I've got to somehow... Um, you know, kind of shake and bake around that and find a way to make it look decent, even if it's not going to look exactly the way I wanted it to. Sure. Before you started making violins, you had an entirely different career. I did. Can you talk a little bit about that and what led to your change? Sure. I worked in the public policy field, and I say that and people go, what the heck is that? <laughs> Which is a reasonable <laughs> question. It means that I worked <laughs> in and out of government developing uh government policies around a variety of issues. At one point, I was working on Latin American affairs. Uh, I worked on Capitol Hill in DC. Um, and then the last 14 years, I was working in uh, Texas state government around the Medicaid program, which is distinct from Medicare, is specifically for poor and lower income folks. Uh, so I was definitely using a different part of my brain. <laughs> <laughs> sure. that. Uh, even to the extent that my mother, uh, when I made this change, she was, she came from Germany. She was old country, old school. Uh, but her reaction was, you're too smart to be being a violin maker. And I said, mom, you gotta be damn smart to be a violin maker. Hell it's yeah. not nearly as easy as you think. Uh, so I, the reason I changed is I was uh, working as a consultant after my career in government, and which meant I was working with other governments, state governments and local governments around the country or around these uh, healthcare programs for the poor and the near poor. And after four years, I just realized, you know, this is not floating my boat. It's turning out to be way too much about making money and way too little about actually helping people. Yeah. And so I, uh, I was ready to quit and the elements came together because our daughter got a free ride to college and we had been, of course, saving up for college tuition and room and board and so on. So I had this nice little nest egg in the bank. And I finally said to my wife, and I had been talking about violin making, I went to the, the uh, uh, Violin Craftsmanship uh, Institute in New Hampshire for several summers. So I knew I had been bitten by the bug and my wife knew this as well. And I said, look, now's the time. If I wait till I retire, uh, I'm going to be a lot closer to when my faculties give out. I won't have nearly as much time to work on this. We've got the money. And her thought was, you know, if he's going to be happier, he's going to be around longer. So that's, that's my deal. 
that's my that's what I get out of this. So she was very supportive about my going up to Salt Lake City and living up there while she stayed in Austin and paid the bills and paid the mortgage and made sure I had money to live on when I was in Salt Lake. And oh, that's a good wife that right a there. Good wife. Wow. And uh, <laughs> uh, she, I, I owe her a lot, not that we keep tabs, not we, that we keep a ledger. I'm very <laughs> conscious of the sacrifices that she how, how many loads of laundry do you do now? <laughs> laundry, grocery shopping. Uh, <laughs> no, she's, uh, it's, it's not, like I said, we don't keep a ledger, but it was, mm. that's a big deal for a spouse to say, look, I'm willing to be separated from you. Uh, not yeah. because I don't want to be with you, but because this is important. Um, she has a musical background, so that probably made it easier. She, she got this in a way that somebody who didn't have a musical background might not have. So here I am, I'm a violin maker. You mentioned about not waiting till retirement, which is resonates because I think um, a lot of people outside of this may not think about how much of a physical commitment it is, as well as mental. Um, and sure, people can do this in retirement age, but maybe not able to execute it as well when you, you've got those... <laughs> Nice young muscles. Well, and the, the, the learning <laughs> gland doesn't work quite as well as it uh, as it used to the learning muscle. Look at your medical speak. <laughs> That's right. That's a technical <laughs> term. Uh, <laughs> brain don't, we all know this. You, you can't learn foreign languages as well when you're older as you could when you were a kid. The, the physical aspects of making, um, such as your eyesight and your hearing and your physical strength, are there in full when you're younger, when you're the age of the people that I went to school with who are in their early 20s by and large. Mm -hmm. So when you get older, all of those kinds of senses, except the sense of touch, all the other senses start to wear down. You start to find that they don't work as well as they used to. Since our, our theme for this entire episode is, is talking about the hard internal battles and the neurosis that we face, um, do you have a low point in all of this that you would like to share? Sure. Uh, before we found the right combination of meds, and that sometimes can take months of experimenting with different combinations. Uh, in fact, this was last year. I went through a period from, I'd say the middle of uh, 2017 to the mm -hmm. uh, early part of 2018 where I was completely incapacitated. I didn't work at all. Uh, I was not earning any money. I was not making any instruments. I couldn't get out to the workshop at all. Uh, none of the things, none of my passions, uh, I was not engaged with any of my passions. Mm -hmm. So playing, which I love to do, play the violin. Uh, I love playing golf. Uh, I love reading. Um, none of those things uh, was working for me. And uh, I call it the black dog when you're keeping company with the black dog mm. and the black dog likes to tell you that there is nothing at the end of this, uh, experience that this is what's going to be, it's going to be like for the rest of your life. And while it's true that some mental health conditions like bipolar uh, depression are lifelong conditions like diabetes can be, or some other physical chronic physical uh, condition, um, Usually with the right combination of medicines and with uh, therapy where you're kind of getting some perspective on all this from somebody who's trained to help you get that perspective. 
you, you do come out the other end. There is, there is hope. There is the light at the end of the tunnel. You do uh, get to the point where you can't hear the black dog anymore. You might smell him, but you can't <laughs> hear him and uh, you don't see him anymore. And that's where you know, okay, if this happens again, if I get with the black dog again, at least I know from my experience that I'm going to come out the other end and it doesn't last forever. So that was, that was a very low period. Um, I was, I was, I'll, I'll be very frank. I was, uh, thinking pretty, uh, clearly about, uh, what would be involved in ending my life. Mm-hmm. And this is called suicidal ideation by the pros. Yeah. And it takes different forms. If you get to the point where you're doing that and you're starting to gather up the equipment to do it, Mm -hmm. that's the time uh, that you know it's it's really serious. If you're having thoughts about it and you're even thinking, uh, okay, I could do this, that, and the other thing to accomplish this, you haven't kind of stepped over the line where uh, you need you need immediate help of some kind. Absolutely. Uh, So I think. It's, it's helpful for people to understand that it's not, uh, it's not that it's okay because it's, it's frightening to feel this way, but you don't have to feel like I'm about to do it if you're not yeah. you know, gathering the wherewithal to do it. Uh, you're thinking about it, uh, and that's normal when you have uh, deep depression like I did. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us. I know in, in depression's rampant in my family and I've had my own incidents where I've had to um, try out different medications. I certainly identify with your talking about the black dog. Um, just even when you just have a smell, you're like, oh, that's that's coming up. Yeah. And I'm sure that a lot of people in this field who spend time alone with their thoughts all day, um, they can understand too. Well, and I think it's really important for people to realize that you can do something about it. It is not something you have to just live with. It's not something that you can say to yourself, well, I'm just going to tough it out and will myself through this. Or uh, it's not something where I, I, my second wife uh, said to me at one point, why can't you just be happy? (laughs) Well, can't just be happy. You can't will yourself through it. You need to, you need other people to help you through it. But there are little things that you can do for yourself. If you feel yourself sort of sinking into a depressive state, uh, if you can get out somewhere and just find a way to be present for me, it was just spending time with my dog, petting my dog. I was not, who is not black, who is not black. Uh, (laughs) she does not smell. Uh, (laughs) other people disagree with me on that, but she does not smell. Uh, just the act of petting the dog and being present to do that and not trying to do more than that can help you stabilize uh, when you're uh, when you're feeling like you're headed into a bad place. Uh, it may not work every time, it may not work for everybody, but there are little strategies like that that you learn about when you're uh, when you go into therapy. Um, mm-hmm. So there is it's not a, a something where you're stuck with it. One more reason why I'm glad I got a shop dog (laughs) who's napping at my feet right now. For anybody who might be struggling, do you have any words of advice that you would like to impart? Well, I think as I said at the beginning, it's important to understand this as a disease, 
Yeah, it's just like any physical chronic disease. It's uh, it's something that's treatable. Um, it is a part of you, but it doesn't define you. And if you can get to a place and you're thinking about it where it's clear to you that you're the master, yeah. uh, you're the master of the black dog. It's not the other way around. Yeah, uh, That helps. And the other thing is uh, don't think twice about getting help. This is not about human weakness. This is about brain chemistry. Uh, with me, it's brain chemistry. Uh, that may be inherited, which it is in my case. It could be situational, which means uh, you've had something, uh, an experience in your life that's been very difficult, a divorce or death of somebody close to you, lost a job. Uh, and uh, that is treatable too by spending some time. There may not be medication involved. That may just be a matter of spending time talking to a professional. And again, <clears throat> it's not a matter of personal weakness. Uh, we all are subject to the limitations of our bodies and our minds. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, don't be afraid to get help. And ultimately, all makers are human. And so we're, we're subject to that. <laughs> We are, even though sometimes we 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 want to we want to act like we're superhuman, but oh, uh, sure we do. <laughs> and and some of our clients want us to be superhuman. Yes. But the reality is, uh, it's a uh, if you choose to do this, you do it because you love it, and uh, you're comfortable with the fact that you're always going to be learning, and uh, you. You may be a perfectionist, but you also know that there are limits to that today. And tomorrow, hopefully, you'll do a better job. Yeah. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate your time and your honesty. Again, that's Julian Kosman Cook out of Austin, Texas, luthier, violin maker, restoration artist, um, currently experimenting with using local Texas materials to make varnish. And I'm really um, excited to watch you on that journey and see what you find out and what you create. Thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun. And this has been this has been fun too. Guys, what do you think about our friend Julian and his presentation? Very brave. Thanks very, for sharing, Julian. Very, very yeah. brave man. Uh, it takes a lot to come mm -hmm. out publicly to talk about mental health. And uh, props to him for destigmatizing what he's going through. And stigmatizing. Whatever, stigmatizing. There we go. <laughs> Love you, Jules. <laughs> Yeah. And we had several people that we talked to about this episode that initially were interested, but ended up backing out because it, it just takes a lot of nerve to put yourself out there. Understandably, you start to think, uh, well, what is going to be running through people's mind when I bring an instrument to them for sale in, in the future, even mm -hmm. if what I'm talking about is healthy and normal? Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I didn't properly introduce. We've got Jerry with us now for the coda. Hi, Jerry Lynn. Jerry. <laughs> hey, Rosie. Hey, Chris. How you guys doing? Yeah. Pretty good, good butter boys. Good. I do have one correction from the top half when Chris and I were talking. 
he called the shop that the Moors were working on teaching trade secrets, and Dang. it is learning trade secrets. LTS. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, so, sorry, Moors. So, um, and one other thing, when you were uh, talking with me, you asked me a little bit about my own neuroses, and uh-huh. I did an, a nice little dodge about um, how things are really wonderful. But after a lot of thought, I am just a big old control freak. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After working with me for a few months, do you, does that sound right to you guys? <laughs> I don't, uh, a little bit, but I think, yeah. I think you do it in a very healthy way. I mean, there's, I have never seen you overstep your bounds. I, I cool. see a genuine want to do things well and do things right. And I think your level of control freak isn't any more or any less than some of the best people in this field. So I think, yeah, I think sympath- you're good. Sympathetic control freak means gets shit done, mm-hmm. does not trample others. I, mm-hmm. I yeah. I'll take oh, it. go on. You guys. All right, you heard it here first. I'm healthy. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to take that to your counselor. Listen, listen to this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jerry, do you have anything you'd like to add? Well, I I realize that every time that I've been on the podcast so far, I've talked about my wife and, or at least I've, I've mentioned her. And I think that's because... Uh, I work by myself and uh, for days at a time, my only uh, adult or human contact outside of technological means is is my wife. And uh, I married very well because she knows all my little quirks, all my little idiosyncrasies. And even though and she married you anyway, she did. <laughs> she did. She's a very brave woman. And uh, even though she has no training in, in Luthery. Um, she knows enough about how my brain works in order to steer me in the right direction. And I should probably back up and say that she's a nurse. And in her career, she's worked uh, in the emergency department of a level one trauma center. Oh, uh, she's currently in an ICU. She, prior to this, also has uh, paramedic equivalency, and she's worked in the field, so she's seen a lot of stuff. It's kind of the, the violin equivalent of, of working in a major shop and seeing, like, every bit of carnage that you could possibly imagine being dealt with. To humans. To humans, right. Yeah. So, one of the, the f- well, what was the first job I did in my own shop. Uh, it was for an instrument lending foundation, and the instrument had this really, really nasty saddle split, and it had been open for years, and there was all kinds of gunk in there. It was missing material. It was it was a pretty kind of gnarly bit of, of real estate to have to deal with, and I worked on this thing for weeks, and... I got it back together and it looked reasonably good, but I was obsessed about it. So I brought the instrument from my shop, which is located behind my house. I brought it into the house and I'm talking about the instrument and I pointed it out and I hand her the violin and she looks at the violin 
She looks at me, and she says, Have I ever told you about Fournier's gangrene? <laughs> Fournier's? Fournier's gangrene. Yeah, don't look it up. You don't want to see the pictures. Anyway, <laughs> okay. she says, um, I said to her, No, I, you, you've not told me about that. She says, Well, it's, it's a form of gangrene that attacks the testicles. Yeah. And she says, as a nurse, you're trained to want to clean wounds and clean infections. And the problem with Fournier's gangrene is if you try to clean it or, or make it better, you just start wiping away the testicles. Oh, God, no. <laughs> she looks at me. She looks at the violin. She looks back at me and she says, stop wiping away the testicles. And hands the violin back to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of that, uh, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. So that was her way of telling me to, it's good enough, you're going to make it worse, shut up and uh, just be done with it. Nicely she should done. teach a luthier class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can we call Yeah. The, the class will be called Don't Wipe Away the Testicles. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> we did have one other person uh, who made a post recently, and she's actually going to be featured in our upcoming story next month for Women at the Workbench. Her women name's at Aubrey. the Workbench. Yeah. Just letting you guys know, there's a lot of women in this field, and they're rad. Uh, they are. Her name is... Yeah, her name's Aubrey Alexander, and so she did make this post. She says, I have OCD, real OCD. This makes me a slightly annoying person to share a workspace with, but it also makes me a better restorer and maker. When I'm stressed, I take great comfort in just sitting at my bench and taking shaving after shaving from a handmade sound post. And she goes on to express how grateful she is for the people at her workshop because they understand and accommodate her oddness. And this is this photo of just this like perfectly tiny shaved bit, like this little thin round slice off a sound post. And uh, she, you know, everybody's having comments about how they relate. Uh, I just thought that was super fitting. And you guys are going to hear more from her. Yeah. Yeah, she's awesome. Love you, Abby. And uh, I have to say, I've known Abby a long time. We were in school together. It is hard to get a tool sharp enough to do that slice we're talking about. <laughs> she, that is, uh, she's got serious skills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I feel less crazy. Uh, how about you guys? Well, Maybe. I, I mean, you know, I'm healthy already. So. <laughs> You're, we've we passed, Rosie. <laughs> Lynn, you work on those testicles, buddy. I will. I think any mental health issue is, you know, you're never exactly over it. I think it's a process. And I think that was kind of Julian's point is, you know, you deal with it and you keep dealing with it. And uh, you do the work. You do the work. Every day. You do the work. Mm -hmm. All right. Any final thoughts, guys? I'd like to roll out um, my new sign off. Which is, uh, good night and keep your F-holes clean. (laughs) You guys okay with that? Yeah. Because I think uh, State Classy San Diego is just going to amuse like two San Diegans. So 
Good night and keep your f holes clean. How about how about I do it? Yeah. Ah, uh, just because your voice is all sexy and shit. <laughs> Good night and keep your f holes clean. information about this podcast can be found at omopod.com or you can reach us on the omo phone at 240-686-5345 invoke sound plays our theme music